Hi, and welcome to the Fulton Ferry Landing. Look for an eight-pointed star. It should be on the ground in front of you. At the center is an engraving of a ticket for the old Fulton Ferry. Do you see it there? This is how people used to travel between Brooklyn and Manhattan before there was a Brooklyn Bridge. That bridge is to your right. Look over and take in one of the greatest achievements in human history. The bridge and I are very close, and I'm going to tell you why. I'm Ken Burns. I make movies about American history, the big stuff, like World War II, baseball, jazz. The Brooklyn Bridge was the subject of my very first film. The idea came to me when I was just out of college, bedridden with pneumonia, in my apartment, and I read David McCullough's wonderful book about the bridge in a single gulp. I came out of my room in my bathrobe and told my partners, "This is our first film," and they basically said, "Go back to bed. You're delirious." And then we spent the next five years making the film. During that time, I got to know the bridge so well. I think of it as my bridge, and today I hope to make it yours. Stay to your left. Let's walk toward the edge of the pier. Head to the part of the guardrail with the quote "cross from shore to shore" engraved on it. Stop here for a moment. In a city known for its spectacular views, this is one of the best. Directly in front of you is Lower Manhattan. See the tall, reflective building—the one with the huge, pointy antenna. That's the World Trade Center, the country's tallest building. Now, as you look, I want you to imagine the years rolling back, and everything you see starts to change. The skyscrapers are becoming unbuilt, disappearing in front of you. As the city shrinks before your eyes. The river fills with hundreds of ships, and piers jut out from the shoreline. Church spires are the tallest things you see. The only other buildings left standing are the short red brick ones directly across the river. Next, the Brooklyn Bridge disappears too. We have reached the mid-19th century. Fulton Ferry Landing, where you are standing, is one of the busiest passenger terminals in the world. Before the Brooklyn Bridge was built. Boats ferried thousands of people every day, but the river crossings had risks. One Christmas, a winter storm ran the boats aground, and in January 1867, during one of the coldest winters in New York history, the East River, right in front of you, freezes over. Everything stops. For people in Brooklyn, getting to work meant walking across the frozen river. Would you try it? Neither would I. This was the last straw. The people demanded a bridge. Let's turn around and walk toward the street. Keep the railing to your left and walk towards the building that looks like a lighthouse. It's an ice cream shop now, but originally it was a fireboat house built in the 1920s. I'm going to let you in on a secret. I can see ghosts. I'm not talking about the supernatural kind. I'm talking about what you see when you're aware of history. Whenever I'm in places like the Fulton Ferry Landing, I'm keenly aware of all the things that have happened in the past, lying just under the surface, all around us. They're right here, just in another time. Like the men who used to rush from the building on your right to put out fires in New York Harbor. When you know the history, 
you can travel through time. We're going to do that today. Continue walking, keeping the ice cream factory on your right. Pass the blue signpost for the River Cafe on your left. You should be standing at the corner of Water and Old Fulton Street. Keep walking toward the intersection. Wait for the traffic, then cross and walk up Old Fulton Street. Keep the Shake Shack on your left as you walk. When you explore the past, you come to realize that the people who walked these streets before us had lives just as full as you and me. They felt the same, they loved the same, and remember, the world we inhabit was largely built by them. Look across the street at the red brick building, the Eagle Warehouse and Storage Company. It's one of my favorite buildings in all of New York City. It's an elegant combination of artistry and craftsmanship. When you see that, you can't help but be impressed by the people who made it. The street we're on, Old Fulton, was originally a dirt path used by Native Americans. In 1642, it became the site of the first commercial ferry landing and grew into Brooklyn's main thoroughfare. This meant it was one of the most important streets in the country, filled with taverns, theaters, and the offices of Brooklyn's most important citizens. By the mid-1800s, Brooklyn was America's third largest city. Manhattan, right across the East River, was number one. For Brooklyn to compete, they needed a bridge. Just around the next corner, I'll show you where it all began. Take a left here onto Front Street and walk down the street. Stop when you get in front of the door at 5 Front Street. It's the red brick building that says Gran Electrica on the front. This is one of the oldest office buildings still standing in New York City. Most people who pass by have no idea of its history. Look up to the top two floors. Behind those 10 windows, the Brooklyn Bridge was born in the offices of a man named Henry Cruz Murphy. You've probably never heard of him, but in the 1800s, he was Brooklyn's biggest power broker. He became mayor and even ran for president. Murphy understood that a bridge connecting New York and Brooklyn would unlock tremendous potential for growth in size and power for both cities. Inside those rooms, he created the New York Bridge Company, and as its president, Murphy raised funds to launch the most audacious structural engineering project the world had ever known. I'll tell you how he did it as we walk. Let's head back the way we came. When you get to the corner, take a left at the crosswalk and cross over Front Street. Keep walking. Now we're going to cross four roads all close together, but keep heading uphill with the bridge to your left. Wait for the signal and look both ways before crossing the street. Be careful here. Just follow the crosswalk toward the trees People had talked about building a bridge for years, 
but as an engineering challenge spanning the East River seemed almost impossible. Keep walking toward the intersection. I'll meet you on the other side. Keep walking when you get there. As you walk on your left, you can see the bridge's anchorage. It's called that because it anchors the suspension cables that hold up the bridge. The bridge had to be high enough so that tall ships could pass beneath it with masts of up to 100 feet. In order to achieve this height, the bridge needed to be 50% longer than any suspension bridge ever built before. Enter John Roebling a German immigrant, a brilliant inventor and engineer. After coming to the United States in 1831, he would become one of America's most accomplished structural engineers. Before you walk under the highway overpass, turn left into the small plaza in front of you. A police car is sitting there, but it's okay. Walk on in. The cops are protecting the entrance to the anchorage. I want to show you a statue. The figures in silhouette are the heroes of the Brooklyn Bridge. The man pointing toward Manhattan is John Roebling. Behind him is his son, Washington, and to his side is John's daughter-in-law, Washington's wife, Emily. Look at your phone now to see their pictures. Emily was very beautiful. Washington wasn't that tall, and John was quite severe. When John Roebling first drew up his plans for the bridge, Emily and Washington had only small parts to play. But a series of tragic accidents would thrust first Washington and then Emily into leading roles. I'll tell you those stories as we walk to the bridge. Now turn around and head back to the street. If you'd like, wave to the cops. They'll appreciate it. They don't get many visitors here. Take a left when you come out of the plaza. We're going to proceed in the same direction we've been going. We'll pass under the highway and continue uphill. In making my film, I tried to use first-person sources as much as possible. Here's a passage by John Roebling, which shows the scale of his ambitions for the bridge. He wrote, the contemplated work when constructed in accordance with my designs, will not only be the greatest bridge in existence, it will be the greatest engineering feat of the continent and of the age. As a great work of art and a successful specimen of advanced engineering, this structure will forever testify to the energy, enterprise, and wealth of that community which shall secure its erection. Respectfully submitted, John A. Roebling, September 1st, 1867. Pretty ambitious, wasn't he? John Roebling's bridge proposal quickly gained support. By 1869, funding was in place and the project was moving forward. That June, John and his son Washington were surveying the bridge site from the Fulton Ferry Landing where we began our walk today. John lost his balance and slipped when an incoming ferry crashed into the dock, pulverizing his foot. It was a gruesome and painful injury. His toes were amputated without anesthesia at Roebling's request. 
But as an ardent believer in hydropathy, he trusted that water cured everything and refused other medical treatments. 24 days later, John Roebling died of lockjaw, one of the most painful of deaths. The Brooklyn Bridge Project had lost its leader. When you get to the corner, follow the sidewalk onto Prospect Street. And when you get to it, walk under the bridge overpass. John Roebling's death threw the entire project into crisis. The financiers of the bridge needed to find a replacement for him. Although he had never supervised an undertaking of such magnitude, John's son and assistant, Washington Roebling, was chosen. Before apprenticing with his father, Washington had served as an engineer during the Civil War, where he built bridges. John Roebling had proclaimed that this bridge would be the greatest engineering achievement of the age. Now, all his 32-year-old son had to do was build it. Right now, we're walking beneath his handiwork. It's not the most elegant view of the bridge, but it's a good time to remember that it's easy to view the achievements of the past as a foregone conclusion. When you get to the corner, take a right and cross Prospect Street to go under the bridge again. Be careful of the traffic. I'll see you on the other side of the street. You're almost there. By the way, this is a good place to buy a snack or a drink. You can press pause and then press start again when you're ready to go. Hey there. On the wall, you can see maps and a Welcome to Brooklyn sign, which is a little worse for wear. It's an inauspicious marker for the iconic bridge we are about to climb. Stop here for a moment, near the bottom of the stairs, just past the Brooklyn sign. There are other approaches to the Brooklyn Bridge, but this one is like entering a castle through a little-used side door. I love the narrowness of it. It gives you a sense of the human scale, a kind of intimacy that you won't get once you're on the bridge. Okay, enough suspense. Let's go up. Notice how the narrow band of sky grows as we climb the stairs. When we reach the top, just keep walking. Wow, I get a rush every time. Take a moment and just feel it. We've reached the sky. We're surrounded by buildings, cars, sheer New York energy. In front of you, in the distance, is the first Brooklyn Tower. Its gothic arches beckon to us. You're on the Brooklyn Bridge. Look around and take it in. As we walk, I want you to be aware that every aspect of the experience you're about to have was carefully designed and rendered by the Roblins. The bridge does what it's supposed to do. It's basically a convenient route over the East River, but it's more than that, of course. It's a majestic passageway, a public space, a work of art. It's transporting in every sense of the word. I've taken this walk hundreds of times, and it never gets tired. Come walk with me. I'm your guide, and with that comes a sworn duty to be your caretaker, too. So listen up, because this is really important. The Brooklyn Bridge is an active bicycle route. So as you come to this crosswalk, look both ways for speeding cyclists. 
I mean it. Look both ways and cross carefully. Take note of the thick white line in the middle of the walkway. Pedestrians get hit by bikes on this bridge all the time, and we've come too far for you to miss the best part. So stay on the left side of that line at all times. The walkway didn't always have a bike lane. In fact, originally, there weren't any cars. Trains rode on the inner lanes, and that left the outside lanes for horse and buggies. But one thing that hasn't changed is that the pedestrian promenade is elevated up above the traffic. Take a look at the cars below you. It's just an extraordinary thing. Rarely does a pedestrian have the pride of place that you do on the Brooklyn Bridge. Now some basic suspension bridge facts. Look at the wire ropes, cables, and towers ahead of you. The roadway you're walking on is held up by thick vertical wires called suspenders. The suspenders hang vertically from four huge cables that are draped over the towers. The towers hold up the cables. That's how it works. So as we walk over this bridge, we are literally suspended. There's a big difference between a bridge's design and the one that you walk across. After John Roebling's death, his son spent the next 14 years of his life working out every detail and overcoming thousands of obstacles. And every calculation carried unimaginable risks. Even the smallest error in a load-bearing estimate would be catastrophic. Remember, there were no computer models, not even calculators. It's no wonder that at the time the Brooklyn Bridge was built, one in four bridges were collapsing due to the use of inferior materials and improper maintenance. Speaking of materials, look down for a moment. Notice that the walkway, which has been concrete up until now, changes to wood, providing a springier step. The material affects not only the bridge's durability, but also the feeling of it. As you are walking, consider what it means that this massive structure was created in a time before electricity, before telephones, before electric motors. By studying the Brooklyn Bridge, I came to more fully appreciate our human capacity to build, to shape our environment, and to create beauty. The first phase of construction turned out to be the hardest. Look at the massive tower in front of you. It rests on bedrock 44 feet below the riverbed. To reach that depth required a revolutionary building method involving what are called caissons. Think of a glass turned upside down and submerged into water so that the air can't escape. Now, in your mind, enlarge it to the size of four tennis courts and build it out of layered pine as thick as 15 feet. Air was pumped into the caisson so that laborers could work from inside. Day after day, they excavated the muddy riverbed by hand. As the foundation for the towers deepened, the caisson and the workers would be lowered further into the river muck of the East River, where they continued digging. Okay, notice on your left that there are cables that rise diagonally out of the roadway. Stop and take a good look at them, as this is as close as you're going to get. Let's keep walking. 
The cables are different from the suspenders. Next, you see the first couple of suspenders. Walk slowly and drink in this extraordinary experience. It's like entering the greatest and most functional work of art on the planet. Look up at the elegant swooping steel cables and the stays, and let's take a moment to contemplate how John Roebling's design transports us through time. The cables and wires are made of steel. They're industrial, modern. Then look at the tower rising ahead of you. It's made from one of mankind's oldest building materials, stone. This perfection would come at a terrible cost to the workers and to the Roeblings. Most terrifying of all was the mysterious illness that beset workers at the ends of their shifts. As the caissons sunk deeper and the pressure inside increased, workers began to display horrifying symptoms after emerging from the deep water. Some would experience chills and vomiting and babble incoherently. Others would fall to the ground, writhing in pain. Caisson's disease, which later came to be known as the Benz, was caused by nitrogen bubbles that formed in the bloodstream when the workers depressurized too quickly. Nobody knew that then. It was terrifying when otherwise healthy workers started to die. Despite earning over $2 per day, about a third of the workforce quit the job every single week. You're almost at the Brooklyn Tower. Remember, there's still a bike path to your right. Cross over to the railing on your right-hand side. You can see there are several plaques that tell the history of how the bridge was built. Take a moment and look at them. You can press pause and then press start again when you're ready to go. Now turn around, put your back against the railing and look up at the tower. Think about the fact that 12 men, 12 human beings, died building this bridge. Some were crushed by falling machinery. Others fell to their deaths. Then there was the mysterious caissons disease that killed otherwise healthy men without warning. Washington Roebling himself suffered a severe attack of caissons disease in the spring of 1872 and lay near death for days. He survived, but he continued to experience blindness, paralysis, and debilitating fatigue that left him bedridden. He would battle this illness for the remainder of the bridge's construction. And then a most surprising thing happened, especially for its time. A woman would take over the day-to-day -day building of this monumental bridge. Now turn to your left and walk across the bike lane to the pedestrian walkway. Look both ways for speeding cyclists. The central column of the tower will be to your right. Walk through the archway, and on the side of the tower facing Manhattan, you'll see a plaque. Stop here, look to your right, and I'll tell you a story. Emily Roebling, Washington's wife, would carry the project through to its completion. She is the third person in the statue we saw earlier. This plaque was added in the 1950s, and it memorializes all three of our heroes, John, Washington, and Emily Roebling. 
the plaque ends with the following inscription. Back of every great work, we can find the self-sacrificing devotion of a woman. I'd like to think that Emily thought of her work as her great achievement, rather than a sacrifice. Turn toward Manhattan and keep walking. Now stop and put both hands on the railing and look toward Brooklyn. You'll be staring at a large beige building with a sign saying Watchtower in red lettering. To the right, you will see a patch of trees, which is the neighborhood of Brooklyn Heights. That is where Washington Roebling oversaw the construction of the bridge from his home. He spent countless hours perched at his windowsill, looking through his telescope, monitoring the bridge's progress. He knew every square inch of it, but the debilitating effects of Quezon's disease kept him from setting foot back on the bridge for 11 years. Let's keep walking. Please stay to the left and remember to look out for bicycles. Heading onto the bridge, I always feel that we're entering somewhere new. We're no longer in Brooklyn or Manhattan. We are suspended above the East River, floating in space and time. You still get the dramatic effect if you look back toward Brooklyn at the radiating stays. Stop here for a moment. Just for a second, humor me and grab the cable and understand its purpose. It is just one part of the bridge, but it is essential to the fact that you are not falling into the East River right now. Feeling it is like discovering that we're riding a magnificent racehorse. You sense its pulse and its strain even in your feet. Now for fun, take the cable and shake it. Feel how it vibrates. The bridge is alive. Okay, let's forge ahead. I'm going to tell you a secret about the cables that hold up this bridge. You see, Post-Civil War New York was one of the most corrupt places in America. And despite the Roebling's noble intentions, the bridge was still a product of its time. Look up. See the cables that loop over the towers from which all the other wires descend? Each one is made of 19 strands, and each strand is made of 278 separate steel wires, a little over an eighth of an inch thick. So each cable contains 3,500 miles of wire. That's enough to stretch from here to San Francisco and then some. And every wire had to be passed over the river individually via a mile-long pulley system. But as the cables were being woven into place, a wire snapped, and a sample was brought to Washington Roebling's bedside. He made a terrible discovery. It's as brittle as glass, he said. It is worthless and the most dangerous material that could be employed. The wire contract had been awarded to the lowest bidder, a con man named J. Lloyd Haig. The builders immediately switched to the superior steel wire made by the Roebling family 
and added additional wires to each cable at Haig's expense. Luckily, the Roeblings designed this bridge to be six times as strong as was required, and that's why it's still standing, despite the fact that Haig's faulty steel is woven into those cables today. We're also at one of the highest points of the bridge. The boats below us, big boats, seem small and inconsequential. We even feel like we're beginning to equal the tall buildings in size. Look to the right at Midtown Manhattan and the Empire State Building. It's like some little trinket you could buy at a souvenir shop in Times Square. Up here, we are resolutely ourselves. It's transporting in every sense of the word. But hey, let's walk. The wooden walkway is filled with benches. It doesn't feel like you're on a bridge now, does it? Roebling understood the importance of this. This elevated promenade gave the city's residents a way to enjoy the open air and panoramic views making this one of the greatest, most generous pieces of installation art ever created. Look down between the wooden slats of the boardwalk. That's the East River down there. It doesn't seem like it's over 200 feet below you, does it? Let's keep walking. On the cables rising to the towers, you'll see gates blocking access. Along with holding up the bridge, these cables are one way to get to the top of the towers. I actually had the opportunity to climb the bridge cables when I was making the film. I was too scared. I passed up an opportunity that most people will never have. But our intrepid cinematographer risked the climb and said it was a thrilling experience. You've probably noticed all the padlocks hanging on different parts of the bridge. To your left is a lamppost for the roadway below. Stop and take a look. Hanging from the bracket that supports it, you'll see dozens of padlocks. They all have writing on them. They are called love locks. This tradition started in Paris. Couples bring locks with their names on them, fasten them to the bridge, and throw the keys into the river. It's a touching tribute to true love. What each of these locks represents, and what the city so often blurs from us, is that individual lives are lived here. But here, in a big city, there's a kind of terrifying anonymity. You can see why people like to bind themselves to something so massive and timeless as the Brooklyn Bridge. In fact, the last time I was here, there was a beautiful green one here on the right, it's possible that lock is already part of history. Let's keep going. While the people leaving their tokens here may believe in true love, city officials aren't so sentimental. In fact, the locks damage the bridge by causing rust and are illegal. I like the locks, but I love the bridge more. So I understand why every couple of months, city workers cut off all the locks. Look up at those Gothic archways 
John Roebling is echoing ancient religious traditions. It's a modern bridge, but those towers could just be the facade of a thousand-year-old cathedral. His design connects the old world and the new, as much as it connects Brooklyn to Manhattan. We're getting close to the second tower now. I think this next 100 yards is one of the most amazing places on the face of the earth. I encourage you to take your time here. So you'll notice the diagonal cables coming back up through the walkway as we enter this gorgeous spiderweb pattern for a second time. These are called the radiating stays, and they were added to give the bridge more stability in windy conditions. You should know that Washington Roebling eventually realized that they weren't completely necessary, but he left them in the plan simply because he thought they were beautiful. That's incredible, and they really are. Meet me at the base of the tower. Walk right up to the tower and place your hand on one of the stones. This reminds us of what a massive human endeavor the bridge is. Seen from a distance, it's a work of art. It has its graceful shapes, the Gothic towers in compression, and the steel in tension. But here I'd like you to remember that human beings handled every one of these stones. They were quarried in Maine and other places, brought here on ships, transferred to scows, lifted by construction derricks, then fitted into place, and all resting on the wooden caissons. Take a moment to feel the weight of that history. Let's keep walking. As you reach the other side of the tower, notice a plaque to your right. It commemorates the bridge's construction. Despite her essential role in the construction of the bridge, you'll notice that Emily Roebling is not listed on the plaque from 1883. It was felt that public confidence in the structure would be undermined if work got out that a woman had played such a vital role in its construction. That's another part of our history. Do you hear that? You're about to learn about one of the biggest celebrations in the history of New York City. In the distance, approaching you from the Brooklyn side, is a small woman holding a rooster. It's Emily Roebling, and the rooster is a symbol of victory. It's May 24, 1883, the bridge's opening day, and she's the first person to walk across the span. Behind her is a huge parade, which includes the President of the United States, Chester A. Arthur, and the new Governor of New York, Grover Cleveland. It was the beginning of the People's Day, and both cities shut down. Schools were let out. Everybody had the day off. Workers were allowed to come and walk over the bridge. It must have been amazing. I wish I had been there. Let's turn back around, following the same route as the parade did over 100 years ago. As we walk toward Manhattan, you can feel and see the bridge beginning to descend into the modern city. Suddenly, this bridge isn't the biggest structure around. New York is tall, powerful, majestic. And from here, as the walkway heads downhill, 
the city exerts a kind of planetary gravity, pulling us down into it. As you walk, move toward the left-hand side of the pathway and stop. Now take a look back over the river you've just crossed. When the bridge was constructed, the river was filled with boats. Now, on the water are primarily tourist boats or freighters, and the only ships with tall sailing masts are down to your right at the South Street seaport. As you can see, now there are plenty of other suspension bridges. To your left, the blue towers of the Manhattan Bridge, and to your right, the much longer, taller Verrazano Narrows Bridge connecting Brooklyn to Staten Island in the distance. They're each beautiful in their own way, but no other bridge rivals the Brooklyn Bridge, in my opinion. Okay, let's continue down into Manhattan. We're now in a time when everyone in our story, from the powerful politicians who authorized the bridge, to the Roeblings who engineered it, to the workers who dug the caissons, to the people who walked over it on opening day, everyone is gone. The place where they exist now is called history. They are the ghosts I told you about at the beginning of the walk, and I can still see them. As we get close to the end of our tour, I want to share a personal story. My film about the Brooklyn Bridge was the biggest challenge of my life then. Maybe even a little foolhardy, but I was young. I was determined. I was also a little ignorant. So in my research for the film, I heard about this play by Arthur Miller called A View from the Bridge. And every single edition of the play I'd ever seen, there was a picture of the Brooklyn Bridge on the cover. So I pestered Arthur for more than a year to do an interview, and he finally agreed, probably just to get rid of me. As I left home for the interview, I grabbed a copy of the play and for the first time read it. To my horror, I realized it had nothing to do with the Brooklyn Bridge. When I arrived at Arthur Miller's Connecticut farm, this towering giant of a man opens the door, leans out and says to me, you know, I don't know a goddamn thing about the Brooklyn Bridge. But he saw my face and took pity on me and let me interview him. He said this thing about the Brooklyn Bridge. It's the final word in our film, and it set me on my course as a filmmaker. You see, the city is fundamentally a practical utilitarian invention, and always was. And suddenly, you see this steel poetry sticking there. It's a shock. It puts everything to shame and makes you wonder what else we could have done that was so marvelous and so unpresumptuous. It carries its weights it does what it's supposed to do. And yet, I mean, they could have built another Manhattan Bridge, couldn't they? And he didn't. He really aspired to do something gorgeous. So it makes you feel that maybe you too can add something that would last and be beautiful. I've thought about that a lot. For five and a half years, I gave everything in my life to this film about this bridge. The film was nominated for an Academy Award, and its success allowed me to keep making films about history and avoid getting a real job. 
Not long after we'd finished the film, the bridge had its centennial celebration. The Roebling descendants had a private party at the River Cafe on the Brooklyn waterfront, and they invited my family to join them. At the end of the party, we all went out onto the deck to watch the firework display, and I was holding my six-month-old daughter, Sarah, in my arms. As the first blast streaked across the sky, I felt time compressing. I felt part of the bridge's history. I found myself wondering what this moment in 2083 might look like, and I made a wish that my daughter, Sarah, would have the chance to experience the bridge's 200th birthday celebration with her children and her grandchildren. Now, the last thing I'm going to ask you to do is look at all the people walking the bridge with you. They are drawn, like you, from many places to experience its beauty. After you finish the tour, take off your earbuds and put your phones away. Take a moment and listen to the different languages. Look at the wonder in their faces. And think that they, like you, are now a part of the history of this beautiful bridge. I'm Ken Burns. Thanks for walking with me.